0: Hi, Jeff here from the University of Kentucky.
1: Ciao, I'm Kristen from the University of Minnesota. Salud, this is Tina from the University of Colorado. And
2: alam, greetings, this is Stuart from the University of Mississippi. Welcome to Pharmacy
1: Fika, a podcast for pharmacy educators by pharmacy educators, where we discuss teaching and learning, scholarship, and academic life. In Sweden,
2: a fika is a coffee break, but it's much more than that. It's a state of mind and attitude. It's all about slowing down.
1: And finding time for friends and colleagues.
3: While you sip a beverage and enjoy a little something nice to eat.
2: So join us. Hey everybody, it's so good to see you all again. It's in February, at least when we're recording this, and it has been, I don't know about you all, but the weather's been up and down, up and down like crazy this month, um, you know, being really cold for a period of time and then unusually warm. So I guess that's global warming. I'm not sure what's happening with all of that, but I do have my snack today. I have to say, I, I woke up this morning kind of uh, feeling pressured about some upcoming deadlines and a little anxious about all that, and then thought about our podcast recording today, and I took a couple of deep breaths. I made myself some tea, and I do feel like I'm much more relaxed right now, to be honest. And uh, so I've got my tea, and I brought this uh, Robert Irvine's Fit Crunch, which I buy at Costco. Ooh. And they're really uh, kind of protein bars and they're really tasty and uh, probably a little healthier than some of the other things that I eat. So, anyway, that's
3: what I brought today. How about you, Tina? What'd you bring? Well, I'm channeling my inner Jeff Kane. I had a, a bit of a run this weekend and I managed to fall face plant and bust my eye open. So um, I just thought, what would Jeff do? He's tough. He'd just get back up and keep going and get a big glass of water and make sure he's well hydrated. And so when I thought about my snack, I thought, okay, I'm going to have a little mandarin orange. So something that was healthy, refreshing, um, you know, probably doing my body and my split eye a bit of good.
2: Speaking of Jeff, how about you, Jeff? What do you get today?
0: so it's going to be it's back to my plain water i barely like this was one of those days that i barely had I barely had the time to run and top it off Um, And it's also my, this is typically when I would eat lunch, so I'm not going to eat a snack and ruin my lunch. So it's back to water. Boring, boring old water. Boring Jeff.
3: Consistent Jeff, not boring Jeff. Consistent
2: Consistently boring. (laughs) Hey, habits of health are really important. So, you know, if you don't stick to it, you're not going to be doing the kind of things that Jeff does all the time. So
3: that's exactly right. You won't have his endurance.
2: That's right. So
3: how about you, Kristen? Well,
1: today I have uh, an iced tea, which I'm very excited about, and some dried figs. I know that sounds kind of weird,
3: but I've been looking forward to it all morning, iced tea and dried figs. I love dried figs. The, the name Tina, one of my students taught me, means a little fig in one dialect of Arabic. And now I love figs. So <laughs> Awesome.
1: Well, they're healthy, right?
2: So, we have a great uh episode today. I think uh, Kristen has prepared us a little bit, so why don't you give us
1: some background on this and yeah, let's have a nice conversation about teams yes, yes, uh, teams specifically in scholarship and in the scholarship of teaching and learning. This has been on my mind a lot recently for a variety of reasons i'm i'm um been reflecting on my academic career and how when I came in, I feel like I was right at the transition point where I was taught as a graduate student, you know, that you were to be this independent researcher, you're supposed to be driving this line of inquiry. Um, And it was the tail end of that kind of era of this independence and this focus on independence. And now I think there's so much more appreciation for team and team science. Although sometimes I feel like we don't necessarily bring that into the education realm. We may do that in, um, I think of that more in the foundational sciences and the clinical sciences, but not necessarily in education. And I've been doing some research too on, on productivity. And one of the things that's come out of that research is that teams can certainly enhance our productivity, not just because there's more hands to do the work, but because of the, the support and the encouragement and inspiration that we get from teams. So yeah, teams have been on my mind and especially in the, in the education realm. I I talk to a lot of folks that are thinking about feelings of not being prepared for scholarship and education, and I think teams can be a remedy for that. So just a lot of reasons why teams have been on my mind. So I wanted to start by asking you all, what are some variables that make for a strong team in the scholarship of teaching and learning? So I'll go maybe um, Tina, Stuart, and then Jeff.
3: Um, I think that psychological safety is the the thing. Um, Kristen, you described a little bit about your personal journey, and I think you know because of the way academics are recruited, you know, we really go through this. You you must shine as an individual to be hired. Okay, that, that's just you know, the deck is stacked that way, and. You know, to achieve that psychological safety, you really have to be able to share some vulnerability of, you know, we're going to learn through this process of, of researching and writing together. And so to me, making that a safe space, I think is probably the first predictor of success.
1: And and a tough thing to do too. You don't just start out in that place. Very tough.
3: Very tough. Yes. <laughs>
2: Yeah. I think complementary skills. Obviously, everyone has to have an interest in whatever that you are researching and writing about. So I think that's foundational. You know, you've got a commitment to that. But I think having a set of complementary skills, because some people are really great writers. Some people are not, but have great ideas. Some people like myself, my skill set is, is a great editor. I'm, I'm not really terribly great about getting the initial ideas out there, but once they're out there, I'm really good about editing them and framing them and flushing out the ideas really well. I think having different skill sets in terms of analysis of data, and, and there's lots of different ways, especially in SOTOL, of analyzing data qualitatively and quantitatively and the quantitative kind of statistics we use in SOTL is very different than other kinds of disciplines. So having someone with some experience and knowledge of that is really helpful. So those, I think, are the big things that I think about is this complementariness of our skill sets and our experiences coming into the project. And it really, I find it really intellectually satisfying to interact with people who have different experiences and knowledge. I mean, it's really great when you encounter a team like that.
0: So I knew that going last, that one of Tina or Stuart was going to take what I was going to say. So I had time to think about it. And actually it was the very first thing that popped in my head was diversity of strengths. But I was also able to, in in my mind, fortunately kind of split that into two different um, aspects. So one is the the writing strength. So someone's better at writing, someone's better at analyzing, editing or whatever. But then I thought back to my AACP academic leadership fellows program. So my team and my group um, that were put together to work on a project and how we were very diverse. In Things like, you know, we had a starter, we had someone that was going to push people through. So we had the strengths in like, I would call it probably more the the management and the seeing something from beginning to end that worked really, really well.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about composition of teams a little bit more because uh, I think sometimes we take in the scholarship of teaching and learning, we take teams of convenience, I call them, you know, like, like who's in this classroom with me, but this inquiry is related to this classroom, who's in this classroom with me. And so they're my team. And we don't necessarily look outside of those boundaries of the people that are naturally invested in the topic of inquiry and try and bring in other kinds of expertise. So what kinds of other folks have you brought into inquiry? Let me start by saying
2: I was exactly in that boat early in my career right and that's partly because i didn't have a network yet right so i didn't know who to ask one of the things that comes with seniority and being around and networking at meetings like aacp and then reading the educational literature is over time you grow to know who are the right people to potentially ask and get involved in your project so i'm in a very different place now, 25 years into my career, well, almost 30 years into my career than I was back in the, those early days. So, but I think that's an important ingredient is always reading the literature, going to meetings where like-minded people go and finding those collaborators. And then once you have that network, yeah, you got, you got to reach out to people out, outside the bounds of your own institution to really make a quality project.
3: I would say, um, I was trying to think of two examples of somebody we brought into the team who wasn't just like naturally a convenient person. In one case, I would say um, the uh, the medical center had a statistician who worked with the residents and other people on their projects. And I, I really didn't know him very well. And what I loved about him was the first day he said, I don't know anything about this topic. <laughs> I don't know anything. You know, I know what these numbers mean and how, you know, how to do this. That's what I'm going to add. And it was actually, all of a sudden, I was like, we almost need that novice mind coming into your team, like somebody who's not, doesn't have a lot of stakes in the outcome, because he was so unbiased. He conveniently came into the team, but now I have purposely sought out people who might have that skill set, but are not part of our, you know, core project team. The second thing I would say, and this is related to Stuart's, which is every now and then go for a long shot collaborator. I was part of a team from a AACP new investigator grant, and Stuart was too, and this project involved EPAs um, and trustable professional activities. Stuart obviously brought in that expertise, but as we were writing the paper, we actually got some advice from Ali Tenkata because we were like, well, we could just ask him. I mean, he may say no. (laughs) He may say, I don't have time to help you, but he actually you know, kind of read through what we were planning and gave us some advice that molded the project. So it gave me a little more courage to go for, you know, the, the Hail Mary pass every now and then just to, to see sometimes you can find, you know, a a real expert who can give you a small amount of time on that project and acknowledge their work and what you're doing.
0: So I'm going to come at it a little different. um, Much like what Stuart said over time, I've built the network and I know the people who have the interest that I have and I've worked with them and I trust them. So those are there, that's kind of built. Um, But I think when I'm thinking of bringing in new collaborators and reaching out, so now I'm thinking more on inviting a resident or a student to join one of the teams that I know functions really well. And typically it's not, you know, oftentimes they're not going to add a whole lot of value in terms of the writing and analysis, but they do, they they provide a perspective and they do end up providing value, sometimes not where I expect it, but it's more of a benefit to them to get them going and get them launched and to see how it's done, see how the process works.
1: Yeah. I'm curious people's experiences bringing in trainees because obviously we're educators and so that's a natural inclination, but there can be um stronger experiences and weaker experiences both for the trainee and for us as as authorship teams you know what are some hints on bringing in trainees in a in a productive way
0: well i tell the the ones that i bring in i say okay, you need to be interested in this Like if you're not interested in it, then you don't need to say yes, because this will be a horrible experience for you. And the way I tell them to think about it is if this paper, this project we're working on, if it came out in print and you saw it, would you read it? And if you would say, (laughs) and if you think to yourself, no, I would never read that, then you're not interested enough to get involved in it. And I think that's kind of starting point for me.
1: And a starting point for all of us, right? Like we should be passionate about what we're doing. Sure.
3: I believe learning is delightful. We don't always get to choose every aspect of it. And there's some things, you know, sometimes I have to read a paper that I probably wouldn't choose to read, but an assignment is different from, you know, a group that we choose. And um, one of the resources that I wanted to share with the group was something that um, my former department chair in London shared with me, which was a technique used in qualitative research, but now I've adopted it for other things, which is called reflexivity. And getting people to sort of say, you know, what are their stakes in what you're doing? And, you know, what what results do they expect out of the project? And, you know, what are their, what theoretical lens are they bringing to it? And that's where you can, because I was thinking about all these things we want complementary skill set, diversity of mindset. It's hard to know, other than your closest inner circle, what those people bring. I used to, you know, I think AACP used to always put their strength finders on their door. You know, on the on the doorway, but I was like, in 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 the academy, we're not often wearing those on our name tag. That's the kind of thing that you have to might dig a little deeper to find out what that person. I you know used to, I like to have a a little bit of a naysayer on the team because they save you from making mistakes that the people like me that are like, I'm so in love with this topic, <laughs> will make so. An activity of sorts that sort of brings that into the uh, into the visible world, I think, is important.
2: Yeah, I really like that idea of having those early conversations, thorny conversations, like you know, who's doing what right for the project who's going to be responsible for what who's going to be the lead on this project and if you've been part of project teams like i have typically there are multiple projects that come centered around a particular topic area and each person on the team you know takes responsibility for a different sub project or you know projects because there are often three or four derivatives that come off of an original idea but each person Taking the responsibility to do derivative number one and derivative number two, kind of leading each of those so that that's kind of spread out among the team, I have found to be really helpful and can sustain our energy. That's the other thing. You know, if you're always a lead, you get tired after a while having to always manage everything. So I like that. I've always found the most functional teams. Each person is willing to step up for different parts of the project. And then when you go to do the writing, having a process that you've agreed in the first place, not only authorship, uh, obviously, but also that, that that you follow a particular process to bring out the product. One that we've recently worked with is a, like a bullet. Um, Like you start out with an outline and then you kind of bullet each thing. And then one person, a single author, goes through the whole thing and turns it into narrative. Um, And I found it to be much more efficient. And that way you don't have different writing styles because the narrative that's actually written is written by one person. But the bullet of it is collectively put together. So I I just found that terrific in terms of way of managing the writing because that can be really a struggle when you have teams, you know.
1: I found myself thinking about you know my most productive teams or the teams that I was proudest of, and and what was it that kind of delighted me about working with that group and the process and the product? Um, do you have any teams that that come to mind or, or or variables that you think influenced something? A team standing out
0: for me, it is um, the thing that stands out most. There's obviously several variables. The thing that stands out most is efficiency or people doing what they're supposed to do when they say they will do it. And those are my favorite people to work with. So as I know going into that, like, okay, I can trust that they're going to do their part by X date, which allows me to do my part by Y date, which means we will be finished by the time I need to be finished before I get into something else. So that's, that's a, more of a, I guess, a technical thing, but it's imp- important to me that I have people who are going to do what they say they're going to do, and I can trust them. And I've built that over time, so I know who those people are.
3: Jeff, that's a really good point about, you know, the the logistics of how the project goes on, and even what our expectations are, which is, again, I think can come out in some of the reflexivity in that. Um, I think I'm a person who, let me say, 98% of the time meets the deadline. I don't think anybody is probably 100%, but 98% of the time. But it drives me crazy to get... 19 reminders I'm like if you told me you needed this on Wednesday I've got it in my calendar I've got the time spaced out please don't send me just checking that you're doing it I'm like you are distracting me from doing the work on the other hand I've worked with people that are like I need nine reminders if I'm supposed to do it on Wednesday (laughs) you know and so you know really picking that apart like how we like to work and saying most of the time our team will work within these constraints and we'll all have a little area of flexibility around, you know, sometimes the internet goes down or, you know, something could happen, but most of the time we're going to work within this. um, We're going to create our group norm cultures, comfort zone, and then we're going to apply it to the projects that we do.
0: So that reminder stuff reminded me, Tina, like, I I tell my wife often, if I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. You don't have to remind me every six months.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think it gets back to trust, though. You know, so those people who are are sending those multiple reminders have either worked on teams they don't trust to actually deliver on time, and that's why they default to doing lots of reminders, and that's why having that level of trust built up front um, or talking about you know, how you manage projects and is that okay with everybody? Um, and then if someone objects to it, having the honesty and the trust to say, no, that would bother the crap out of me. Please do not send me multiple reminders. But if you're, you don't trust the person would take that well, you're not going to voice that, right? So this is why it all comes back to trust and being vulnerable and, and allowing yourself to say what's on your mind yeah. related to the project and then delivering when you say that you can or if you can't, if someone comes up, Being honest and also coming back to the group. All of those things are so critical to group functioning.
3: I would say a strategy that um, is important to me now is, and I used to be a, let me do my own work and let me get it perfect before I share it with Jeff. I'm a big co-creator. So in addition to Stewart's, like, let's get those dot points down. I'm like, let's do that in a cloud-based sharing thing where everybody can see that. So if I'm, I'm the dra- drafter and I'm going off on a tangent, Kristen may say, hey, I think you took that dot point a little further, <laughs> you know, versus the way I probably was trying to work, which was sequential teaming, you know, we hand it off to you, you hand it off. Um, I kind of prefer the co-create and that's changed.
1: Yeah, and that co-creation might be synchronous. It might be asynchronous. You know, there's so many uh, technologies that'll support the the work that we do now. There's too I, you many know,
3: technologies, I'm, but <laughs> yeah, no,
1: this is true. It's a it's a chore to stay on top of it all. Um, I want to come back to uh, some of the the comments around trust because as soon as I hear the word trust, I think of five dysfunctions of a team, and you know that that model of how is it that we over time develop our capacity to function highly as a team. And it might not be just one project that gets us to that point. We may need to have successive projects where we not only establish trust, but I'm really interested in that layer where we have constructive debate. You know, where it's not just getting the project done and all the blanks have been filled in, but we have really gone in there and, and you know, constructively argued and debated with one another to get to the strongest product. And I'm curious how that resonates with you and your team experiences, how and when you get to those points and what that means to the work.
2: Well, I I can give you a recent experience. So I've been working with a group on situational judgment tests. And we actually published a review on the topic and then have several projects that are going to be derivative from that, um, which is another recommendation I give to people. When you get into a topic, start off with a review of the topic because it's a great natural place to start your scholarly work is what's already out there and summarizing it. And that informs yourself as well as the rest of the world. But I found this project so delightful because of this constructive conversation that we have about constructing this test, the analysis plan that we have for each of us have different As I said, skills and and views on this. And it's been just such a a great conversation. Every time we get together is just so intellectually stimulating and gets me to rethink some of the things that I have thought about, you know, what I think would be the right direction. And when you get that. That place with a group, I think that's when it's really enjoyable. And it's the collective wisdom that's coming from the group that's really, you know, shaping the project, but also is really providing a lot of enjoyment for your participation in the project.
3: I think that, Stuart, is so important, like that we get that intellectual buzz. From the debate, respectful debate, and I think that's a reframing we have to do is debate is the best way to honor someone and say, I understand what you're saying. I'm thinking about it in this other way, or I understand that you've interpreted the literature in this way, and I'm going to bring this other interpretation. That's how you get good science, right? Avoiding that actually means your project's not going to achieve everything you hope it's to, it's going to achieve. And your team really isn't a safe space for intellectual, respectful conflict. When I think
1: about teams that have um, delighted me, you know, that, that, that I think about, you know, years after the project is done. Another element that stands out is it, it builds off of this dialogue and debate is just some risk taking, and that's become more and more important to me as I've I've matured in my career. Is that you know we're not just peddling along, you know we're not just like doing the next thing, but we're being a little bold and taking some some risks. Uh, whether that's with the tone or the persuasiveness of the piece, uh, maybe it's with the call to action, uh, maybe it's in drawing in different disciplinary areas, but when you have that team that's gelled and that has the trust and that can debate, then you can feel like you can step out a little more strongly and um, you know position your work in a different way.
3: I love that. Can I can I add a little bit of controversy to this conversation? Which is, these are we've been talking about things that make us make the work better and make us bolder, and feel like we're part of these high-performing teams, which, again, it feels like when you're in that team and it's high-functioning, you feel awesome. And and actually, a team-based project is probably going to be slower, but better. I'm not sure our academic reward systems actually prioritize that right now. And I've even had some places that have said, um, somebody who I knew who was going up for promotion who... This project had gotten a lot of attention. They said, "Oh, but you know that's a team project. What about your individual?" And I thought, "Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! All the hard stuff is going to take a team, but that's not really the way our our academic standards are written for success." And um, that may be causing our junior members, our junior members of the academy, to say, "Okay, the first thing I need to do is be independent, and then I wish that there's." was a way that we could influence that.
2: I was going to say, I think one of the issues that's always plagued academia, and even if you think about student teams and learning teams, is the loafer, you know, right? I could be invited to a bunch of team-based work and contributed quite little to it. And we've all had those, you know, loafers on our teams at some point. We don't care to work with them again, but sometimes they get invited over and over and over again because they've been on other teams that have produced really good work, and so they're perceived to be really great teammates. This is also true of student groups. Um, And so how do you deal with the loafer problem, you know, the person who's really not contributing to it even though they are getting as much accolades as the rest of the team sometimes? I think it weighs on the minds of people when you're looking at someone going up for tenure and promotion, how much did they really contribute to this kind of work? There's, there's got to be a way to measure it or count for it, um, but often I think that's the thing that gets in the way, right? Is like, what was your individual contribution that had its impact on this project?
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah, and that doesn't come out just naturally. Someone looking at a CV and they see your name among five, it doesn't come out.
3: The author Neil Gaiman, uh, who's somebody I follow a lot, a good bit. I think he said, when you're working in a team, you need to be on time, do great work and be easy to get on with. And really, you only need to do any two of those to be a valuable team member. So, you know, a great team member would be on time, do great work, and is easy to get along with. But as long as you have two of those, you can be a good team member. And I'm like, well, sometimes good enough is good enough.
1: Well, I think we have done some good work today, but it feels like there's still a whole lot that we could unpack. We've talked kind of about the composition of teams and getting them started, but I'm sure we'll come back to this topic. Thanks for
2: listening to Pharmacy Fika, a podcast where we enjoy coffee and conversations.
3: If you liked this episode, please pass it along to a colleague and be sure to rate us.
0: You can share your reactions on Twitter at Pharmacy Fica, but please be kind. This is a safe space.
1: Got a question or want to suggest a topic for a future episode? Leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash Bye for now. Namaste.
0: Dasvidanya.
1: Au revoir.